You're listening to audio from Grace Hills Church in Aliso Viejo, California. For more information, visit us online at gracehills.com. Thank you, Annette, and uh, thank you all for being here. It's uh, My name is Warren Williams. I'm one of the elders here. Uh, more important, I'm the husband of Jeannie Williams. If, if you don't... <laughs> If, if you don't know me, you certainly must know Jeannie, uh, but if I don't know you, uh, feel free to come up anytime after or in the coming weeks and shake my hand and introduce yourself. Uh, we've been members here for over 30 years uh, and uh, looking forward to this opportunity to sharing this morning. Uh, let me open in prayer. Um, bow your heads, please. Father God, I, I ask you to be here with us this morning and to bless our time here together. Uh, If anyone here is not yet a believer, I pray that your Holy Spirit will give their hearts and minds uh, the truth of your word about yourself and about your Son, our Lord and Savior. For those of us here who are already believers, I pray that we can gain more insight and new insight into how wonderful Jesus is and that we can also gain knowledge and and, uh, experience better How high and wide and long and deep is Jesus' love for us, this love that surpasses knowledge. I pray for these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, In the last few weeks, we've had a a great sermon series on Jesus teaches on this and Jesus teaches on that. And and, uh, my idea for this morning, two big ideas. I'm going to talk about who Jesus is and why we should be listening to what Jesus teaches us about. And then secondly, uh, how much Jesus loves us. The reason we should listen to what Jesus teaches us is that he loves us. What he teaches us is because he loves us and wants what's best for us. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. And before we look um, in detail in the Bible about what the Bible says about Jesus and what the Bible says about how much he loves us, I wanted to talk uh, a little bit about you know, just what the world, living in the world, teaches us about God and how it points us to God. And I I thought about taking a show of hands. I'm not going to take a show of hands. How many here are are atheists or or agnostics? No, you you don't want to. (laughs) But if you are, there's two things you should consider as to why believing in God really would make a lot of sense. And the first and most important thing is you look at the physical universe itself, how vast it is, how complex it is, how orderly it is. It had to have a creator. I don't know if I'm going to have any slides this morning. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, there's their title. And we're ready for our first slide, I think. Um, But the heaven, you know, Psalm 19 starts off, the heavens declare the glory of God, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Um, Romans chapter 1, verse 26 says, you know, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that men are without excuse. If you look at the world, you look at the universe, you're without excuse if you don't believe there's a God. And just looking at the details, I mean, how many have ever been up in the mountains at night and looked at the sky? If that doesn't just instinctively give you a feeling of awe and wonder about who made that, you get the same feeling. I've, I've had the fortune, I have, a, I have four grandchildren, two of them born in the last year, and I've had the experience of holding a newborn grandchild. And you look at that child and you look at her 
tiny little eyelashes and you look at her little fingers and her little fingernails and you think, God must be real. This can't, this can't happen on its own. This miracle can't just happen on its own. So that's one thing, very important. The world points you to God. And I, I don't want to take up too much time with this. The second thing is morality or right and wrong points us to God. When we make moral judgments, we say that, well, this, this is right, uh, this is wrong, you know, lying is wrong, murder is wrong, stealing is wrong, adultery is wrong. We don't think that's a, a matter of a majority vote. We don't think that's just a matter of counting noses. We think these things are really wrong no matter how many people agree or disagree with us. Is that, is that everyone's experience? I mean, when, when someone steals from you and does you wrong, you don't think, well, this is wrong not just because it inconvenienced me. This is wrong. The only way you can have absolute moral values, absolute goodness or absolute evil, is if there's an absolute judge, and that's God, who made it that way. If we just somehow evolved and were running around, morality couldn't be more than a majority vote. But we believe in absolute values, and, and that's, that's, <laughs> that points to God. The verse, the verse I, I uh, second slide, next slide. <laughs> in Romans, it talks about how the Gentiles have the requirements of the law written on their hearts and in their consciences. That's what I'm talking about. That points us to God's reality beyond the world. There's a, a famous German philosopher, Immanuel Kant. Let's see a sparse show of him. Who has heard of Immanuel Kant? What an educated group. <laughs> He's a very famous guy, but he said, two things fill my mind with ever new and increasing admiration and awe, the starry heavens above and the moral law within me. And almost every commentary you read on Psalm 19 will, will include that quote from Immanuel Kant, because that's what Psalm 19 is all about. The heavens declare the glory of God, and, and your law is pure and wonderful, O God. Those are the things that point us to God. Well. Let's move on to the, the star of our show, which is Jesus. Uh, in your outline, I talk with who is Jesus. And, and the main thing, I mean, you know, I'm talking about Jesus' love. I'm talking about God's love. I make that interchangeable. I mean, Jesus, God is the Father. Jesus is the Son. They're two of the members of the Trinity. Each is a separate person, but they are one God. You know, to me, saying God loves you and Jesus loves you is almost interchangeable. Um, so don't get technical when I give a verse that says Jesus loves you and it says God loves you and say, wait, it's not saying Jesus. It's saying Jesus loves you and he's God. You look at some of the verses. In the main verse is John 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the word, that Greek word logos, the, the purpose, the underlying idea of everything. That's what Jesus is. The logos, the purpose, the underlying idea of everything. He was with God in the he was He what does it say? Uh, in the beginning was the word, and the word he was with God, and he was God. Okay? He was with God in the very beginning. And that beginning is before anything was created. The beginning in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's when the physical universe started. But before that beginning, John 1-1 is talking about the real beginning even before that. Back in eternity, there was God the Father, there was God the Son, he's not mentioned, but there was also God the Holy Spirit, and they were together, and they were with each other, and each one was God. Um, in John 10, 30, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. 
We can cut through all the other verses. It's right there. <laughs> Jesus and the Father are one. Uh, Colossians 2.9, in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. Every bit of God was in Jesus in bodily form on the world. There's some other verses in your outline in John chapter 17 and Jesus's high priestly prayer. He talks about having the glory he had with God before the creation in the world. The glory God gave to him before the earth was created. Ephesians 1 verse 4 talks about God choosing us in Christ before the creation of the world. Jesus existed forever. So when you think about, well, am I going to believe in God? Am I going to become a Christian, believe in Jesus? Jesus is not just the, the, not just the human being that was born in a manger about 0 AD and walked on the earth for 33 years and died and was crucified. Jesus is the eternal God. He goes back even before that. And, 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 and not only is he eternal, but he created everything. Uh, and I, do I have verses for that? No. John 1.3, Colossians 1.16, Hebrews 1.2 all say God created the universe through Jesus. He, he did it through Jesus. And more than that, not only was everything created by and through Jesus, uh, if you look at Colossians 1.17 and Hebrews 1.13, he holds everything together. He sustains all things. If you accept the notion that the, the universe could not have created itself, it had a moment in time when God created it, what keeps it going? The only th it couldn't keep going by itself. The only thing that could keep it going is Jesus who created it. He, he holds it together and he sustains it moment by moment. If you got out of bed this morning, it's because Jesus, Jesus let you do that. If you're standing on the ground, it's because Jesus keeps that ground underneath you. My parents' Sunday school teacher was a <coughs> philosophy professor, and he liked to say, the so-called laws of nature are nothing else but the faithfulness of God. Nothing else but the faithfulness of God. Okay. I'm down to number five on the outline there. I said, Jesus shows us God the Father. He's the only way to the Father. And, and, and the verses for that, let's see, uh, you know, in, in John chapter 1, it talks about no one has ever seen God but Jesus. And, and then you get a Greek word that no one has to, knows how to translate, the monogenus, the only begotten Son of God, God the one and only, the unique Jesus. Uh, he's the one, he's at the Father's side, and he has made God the Father known to us. And in John 14, you know, Philip is asking Jesus, you know, show us the Father. That'll be enough. And, and uh, uh, Jesus says to Philip, I, I almost hear this in Jimmy Stewart's voice from, uh, from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Don't you know me, Philip? <laughs> Do you know me? If you've seen me, Jesus tells Philip, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you know everything about the Father, how much he loves you, how much he cares for you. And then, and then John, uh, you know, John 14, 6 goes on and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And you've all heard that verse before, too. Is anyone bothered by that verse? <laughs> it's saying very clearly, Jesus is the only way to God. And I know some, some very smart people and people who I love who say, well, you know, 
that's the biggest difficulty I have with Christianity because I worry about what if someone has never heard of Jesus? Or what's maybe more likely, what if there's someone whose family and cultural background, uh, maybe they've heard of Jesus, but the idea of believing in Jesus isn't really an option for them. I mean, I, you can imagine people with a, I don't know, a, a different religious background who, who say, well, it's just, it's just not a live option for me. There's two, you know, I don't want to, I don't like making arguments, you know. Peter says, what, always be prepared to make a defense for those who ask you the reason for the hope you have. You shouldn't be arguing. Arguing never convinces anyone. What convinces people is the Holy Spirit working in the person's heart that opens their mind and heart to the truth of the gospel. But the, the two things I would want to say is, is it unfair that Jesus is the only way to the Father? No. God is just. He will do the right thing. As, as Abraham said to God when he was praying for, the, for Sodom back in, in Genesis, will not the judge of all the earth do right? When you say, it's unfair, God, that Jesus is the only way, you're, you're saying, well, God's, God's going to be immoral and unjust. God is not immoral and unjust. The judge of all the world will do right. And then the other answer it's a hard answer, but I think it's a true answer, is what Jesus said to Peter in John chapter 21, when he restored him on the beach and, he, and they had breakfast and he, Jesus starts asking Peter, Peter, do you love me? He said, yeah, I love you, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Yeah, I love you, feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Uh, he was hurt because Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? And that I think incidentally is a, is a, is a, a, a capsule of why God asks us to pray repeatedly. Because when we pay, pray repeatedly, it, it dawns on us what the real truth is. G, when Jesus asked Peter that the third time, he said, yeah, I guess I really do love you. He said, feed my sheep. And I, I, wanna go on, I, I don't wanna go too far on a tangent here, but when Jim Webster, a former pastor here, preached on that passage, he said, and you noticed Jesus didn't ask Peter uh, if he liked to feed sheep. <laughs> he, said, he said, if you love me, then you'll feed my sheep. Well, anyway, then the next question is, they start talking about John. He said, you know, John's over there. You know, how long is John going to stay alive? What if, what if he stays alive till I return? Peter asks. And Jesus gives this answer. What is that to you, Peter? What of this other person's future? What is that to you? You follow me. And for someone who's struggling with whether they should believe in Christ and they don't think it's fair that Jesus is the only way because maybe there's someone who hasn't had heard about Jesus in a way that's real to them, the question for that person is, well, what, what is that to you? You follow me. The person asking that question has had Jesus fairly and fully presented to him. You don't have that excuse. You need to decide for yourself who Jesus is to you in your life and make that decision for him or not for him. Um, we're doing good on time. <laughs> in the outline, we're at, the, we're at number six here, and it says, Jesus is God, the great I am. And uh, many of you may know this, but back in Exodus chapter three, when Moses Moses asked God, well, who should I tell the Israelites sent me to, to do this, to lead them out of slavery? And God said, tell them I am that I am. I am that I am. Does that remind anyone of Popeye? 
I am a, no, God is the self-existent ground of all being. He is what he is, and he, he is, I am what I am. Well, the very interesting thing is that same expression of ego ami, I am, translated into Greek in the, in the Jewish, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. John uses that in, in the Gospel of John, and Jesus says that over and over in his I am sayings. He says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate. I am the shepherd. I am the resurrection of life. Every time he says that, he's reinforcing the idea that he is God. He is God. The most famous, uh, I think the best example is when uh, Jesus was arguing with the Jews about whose father they, they had. They had Abraham as our father. And he, what did he say? I tell you the truth before Abraham was, I am. Uh, in, in John 18, when Jesus is arrested, the soldiers come to, to, uh, to arrest Jesus. And he, they ask him, are, are, are you the one we're looking for? And he says, I am. And you read John 18, verse, verses 5 and 6, very interesting. These soldiers, these hardened police officers, SWAT team, they fell back and fell to the ground. Jesus affirming his deity with that I am who you're seeking they fell down. Can you imagine a, a hardened uh, police officer soldier going home to his wife? And she said, well, how was work today? He said, well, the darndest thing happened. <laughs> we went to arrest one of these uh, itinerant preachers, and uh, we asked him who he was. He said, and next thing we know, we're all flat on our backs. We don't know how that happened. Well, we know how it happened. He was, they met the God of the universe. That's how that happened. Okay. Um, the next slide about Jesus being the resurrection and the life. Um, I've, I've had a lot of, over the last six months, I've had this terrible sinus infection, and I've had two surgeries and a bunch of treatments. I'm almost well, but I need some water. <laughs> if you want to talk about the, the four different types of sinuses you have and what endoscopic surgery can do to you, let me know. <laughs> Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Uh, and to the uh, thief on the cross, remember, Jesus told him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. He said, my desire. And in Philippians, when Paul is debating, he's in prison he knows he hasn't got that much longer to live. He doesn't know where he's going to die in prison or, or be released and still go to, to uh, minister to the Ephesians. He says, I don't want to know what I want to do. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Uh, he says, if I live, that means fruitful labor. If I die, I'll be with Christ, and that's far better. Um, what I want to say, is, and this is a little bit of a tangent, um, on death and dying, and this this might be more of a message for our, our second service, for the people who are as old as me and older. <laughs> Something from JB, does it, does it, do you guys fear death? Anyone fear death? We're too young to fear death. It's, 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 it's out of the question, right? JB Phillips wrote a great book, Your God is Too Small. And in that book, in his short little chapter on death, I'm, I'm paraphrasing now, what JB Phillips said based on these verses is for a Christian, death is not an experience to be feared. Instead, for a Christian, death is not an experience at all.
Okay? Now, I'll say that again. For a Christian, death is not an experience to be feared. For a Christian, death is not an experience at all. Well, that's, that's great for the, the person who's, who dies and goes to depart and be with Jesus immediately. What about the rest of us who, who are left here and, and we mourn our dearly loved loved ones? I mean, I, I went through this with my father 40 years ago when he died of cancer. Our, our family is struggling with this. I'm not going to be able to say this without crying, but um, my wife's younger sister just passed away at age 60. Just a, a bright, fun, energetic person, the, 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 the highlight of her family, the highlight of, of every party she was with, and, and we're struggling with her absence. Like I struggled for the last 40 years with my father's absence. And um, so I, you know, the slides, I, what I say here is, is, does this mean we're not supposed to mourn? By no means. I mean, Jesus himself, when he went and, and resurrected Lazarus, he, he saw how Lazarus' family was mourning, and Jesus wept. And, and Romans you know, 12, 15 says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. When I, when I first read Romans 12, 15, I, at first I thought, what a, what a cliche. That's, but then the more I thought about it, I said, you know, Romans 12, 15 is really profound. Because rejoice with those who... What's our common reaction when people are rejoicing? Don't we want, them to, tell, don't we want to tell them to cool it? Aren't we, aren't we like, a little bit like Larry David, you know, curb your enthusiasm? It's not that great. And, and then if, if people are weeping, we always want to correct someone. Right? When you're weeping, we say, hey, Romans 8.28, there's a reason for this. It's good. <laughs> no, no, just put your arm around them and weep with them. And... Uh, you know, what I wanted to, the experience I had, um, it, was, it would have been in the mid-90s. I, I was meeting regularly with a Christian friend of mine. We had kind of a miniature accountability group. And, uh, you know, my dad died in 1982. I'm almost over it. I'm almost over it. But uh, in the mid-90s, I, I was grieving. And one of the things I would talk about with my friend was, was, uh, you know, how much I loved my dad and how much I missed him. And uh, he died when, uh, when Jeannie was pregnant with our, with our son, Keith. So he never, he never met our son. He never met our daughter. My, uh, my son, Keith, turned out to be a, a pretty good athlete in all sports, but particularly on baseball. I mean, Little League, Pony League, high school baseball. And I thought one of my dad's passions was baseball, how much he would have loved being at Keith's games and seeing him. My daughter Meredith has infinite talents, <laughs> but uh, one of them was music in, uh, you know, in uh, junior high school orchestra and high school orchestra. I was in the Orange County Youth Symphony Orchestra, unbelievable music group, uh, all-star orchestra of high school students from all over Orange County. And the music they played, my dad loved music. They, they would have been uh, all the concerts of his. And so I think about how much I missed my dad and how much he would have enjoyed um, you know, watching Keith play ball and watching Meredith's performances and, uh, and to try to, and I was talking about this with my friend and, and what did he say to me? He said, Warren, you're lucky. I said, Wayne, what do you, what do you mean I'm lucky? He, said, he says, not everyone has a father that they loved as much as you love your father. Not everyone has the privilege of having a father who loved them 
as much as, as your father loved you. So in the midst of the, the real sorrow and, and, and the weeping and, that comes when we lose a beloved loved one, the, the thing to try to keep hold of is how lucky you were to have the, the love and the joy and the comfort of being with them while they were alive. That blessing, that blessing. Uh, if you've seen the movie Shadowlands uh, with Alec, Alec Guinness and Deborah Winger on uh, C.S. Lewis, uh, C.S. Lewis and his uh, girlfriend Joy Davidson, she had serious cancer. They thought she'd almost died. She recovered, and they're, they're out having a picnic in a, a beautiful spot in the English countryside. And C.S. Lewis says to, to Joy Davidson, I, I wish this could just last forever. And she says, it ain't going to last forever. He says, I have cancer. I am going to die. But the joy we're sharing now is part of the grief then. It's two sides of the same coin. It's a package deal. So anyway, I, I don't know if this helps in the middle of the grief, but just to try to understand that the grief then or, or the grief now for our family and, and Janet is part of the joy. It's all wrapped up together. It's all wrapped up together. Well, let me, uh, let me try to get to something less uh, emotional. <laughs> uh, point nine in, in the um, outline, Jesus is the divine son of man. How many of you have read through the Gospels and Jesus repeatedly refers to himself as son of man, right? And uh, there's even a, a famous hymn, Thou son of God and son of man. And it, it's not talking about Jesus' humanity. Uh, it's, it's referring to Dan, the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 7 of Daniel. There's a prophecy, uh, and it's on the slide. You know, Daniel writes, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And, and just a brief explanation, earlier in chapter 7, he's talked about different kinds of beasts. So when he's talking about he sees one like a son of man, he said, well, this ain't a beast like I've just seen. This is now in human form. That, that's what he's talking about, a son of man. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And Jesus referred to himself as the son of man, saying, I am that divine figure prophesied in Daniel. I'm going to have a kingdom that, that will never be destroyed. I'm going to have dominion that will never pass away. And, and you can, I gave a bunch of verses in the outline, uh, but, you know, one of the real good ones is, is in Matthew. He says, I tell you, you know, Caiaphas said, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And he said, yes, yes, I am. And I tell you, from now on, you'll see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. There's a couple of these verses where Jesus is referred to the Son of Man, and he says, you'll see me coming on the clouds of heaven. Uh, Jesus is the only one who refers to himself as the Son of Man in the Gospels, but when Stephen is stoned in Acts chapter 7, at the end of Acts chapter 7, Stephen has a vision and he says, he sees the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. It's that divine figure in Daniel. That's, that's who Jesus is. Um, well, you know, and just in, you know, some of the, some of the prerogatives that Jesus has as a Son of Man, he's the Lord of the Sabbath, he forgives sins. He's going to judge all men at the end. Matthew 25 is a long chapter about he's going to divide the sheep from the goats. That's what the Son of Man does. 
Okay, well, that's, that's who Jesus is, and I want you to really understand the, the enormity of who Jesus is. He's eternal. Before the universe began, he, he existed with God. He created the universe. As the universe goes along, he sustains it. He holds it together. He created you. He chose you. God and Christ chose you before the universe began. He knows everything about you. Uh, but let's start talking about how much Jesus loves you. Uh, and, and here I'm just going to rely mainly on the, the plain words of the verses. And the, the primary verse, it just always gives me goosebumps when I read it, is, is in Ephesians. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. Paul's praying. He says, I pray being rooted and established in love can have power together with all the saints to grasp. And I love these words, how wide and high and long and deep is the love of Christ to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I was a philosophy major, I love that phrase. How can you know something that surpasses knowledge? You know as much of it as you can, but as much as you know, there's still more to find out. You know as much as you can, but you, there's still more to find. You can be filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. That's, that's the love Jesus has for you. Um, next slide. This, his love is so great, um, uh, back up one, I think. No? No, that's right. <laughs> when talking about how high and wide and long and deep is the love of Christ, there's, there's a great song called The Love of God. Have any of you heard it? The, the words are on the screen there. The now, I'll just quickly read it. The, the love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. And then here's the great metaphors. Could we with ink the ocean fill and were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every one a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. The love of God is wide and long and high and deep. It's, it's bigger than anything you can imagine. Next slide is for, you know, it's a couple more verses about how great that love is. In Psalm 103, when, when, when the psalmist is talking about God forgiving you, as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is God's steadfast love to those who fear him. Um, at the end of the second service, we're going to get to sing my favorite hymn, And Can It Be? And one of the verses in the, And Can It Be? is, Tis mercy all immense and free. God's love is immense. His mercy is immense. And how much do we have to work for it to get it? None. Not a thing. It's free. It's mercy free. It's God's love and mercy is immense and it's free. Well, that's how big the God of love is. And, and what does it do? In, in next part of the outline, item two under letter B, nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And the, the very famous verses at the end of Romans chapter 8. Romans 8 is, uh, you read commentaries and, and they'll say, you know, Romans might be the, the whole Bible is the word of God and the whole Bible is, what is uh, you know, profitable for teaching, rebuke, and correction. But many people think Romans is the key book in the Bible and, and, and Romans 8 is the key chapter in Romans. As, as someone said, Romans begins with no condemnation, it ends with no separation, and in the end, all in the middle, all things work for good. You, 
doesn't get any better than that. But anyway, Romans, Romans 8, verses 35, what shall separate us from the love of Christ? And, and Paul's very tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, etc., 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 height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation can separate us from the love of Christ. And so nothing separates from the love of Christ. And everything, well, what do you mean? I've lost my job. My, my family member died. I've had terrible things happen. My, my children don't like me. <laughs> if you get to the next slide, um, I, I, if, the, the question is, Chris, well, the statement I want to make, there it is. Christians are not spared from trouble. I mean, that's the truth. That's the truth. You think, oh, I'm a Christian. I'm going to, it'll, <laughs> my, friend's, my friend Steve Morris has a great saying. He says, oh, you mean it's all Skittles and beer from here on? No. <laughs> Life is not all Skittles and beer. Christians are not spared from trouble. <clears throat> but the truth is, Jesus loves us in the midst of trouble. Habakkuk, in chapter 3, the, the Babylonians are going to invade the whole agricultural economy is going to be wiped out. And what does Habakkuk say? I will rejoice in the Lord. I'll take joy in the God of my salvation. In the, at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, Jesus says, whoever hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, he's like a man who built his house on the rock. And then what does it talk about? It rains on both those houses, but if your house is built on the rock, it'll stand. The end of John, chapter 16, verse 33, Jesus says, I've said these things to you, and me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. In the world you will have trouble. Most frightening words Jesus ever said. <laughs> but take heart, he says, I'm with you, and I've overcome the world. Um, so, you know, moving on to the third point here, uh, what I wrote in the eyes, God so loved us, he gave his son to die for us. We, we all know John 3.16. That was in our opening. God so loved the world, he gave us his son. Um, Romans 3.31-32. Romans 3.31-31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? This is love, not that we love God, but he loved us and he sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Um, I wanted to tell a story about this. If you read Romans 8, he says, God did not spare his own son. When I was talking to my Christian friend in the mid-90s, we had like a little accountability group. I mean, one thing I would talk about with him was how much I was grieving over my father who died 15 years earlier. Uh, but at, at that point, uh, my son Keith was in, uh, I don't know, 6th, 7th, and 8th grade. He was in the high point of his, uh, his uh, youth sports career. And so in the fall, he would play soccer, and in the winter, basketball, and the spring, baseball. And so I would tell my friend, you know, every Saturday, I would take Keith to a sports event, and I would tell my friend everything Keith had done. I, I have two amazing daughters. I don't want to shortchange them. But, but at that period in my life, Keith was the apple of my eye, okay, just for background. So Meredith and Emily, forgive me, but I just want to make a point here. And, and so 
in the middle of, you know, so every time I met with Wayne, I would tell him about Keith, and then I'd tell him, you know, I'm not sure God loves me because, you know, my, my dad died, and these, I've had these reverses at business and work, and, and I'm just not sure he really loves me. And so he asked me a question. He says, Warren, is there anything in the world or anyone for whom you would sacrifice Keith, your son? And I said, I, I've been telling you, every, I always spend every Saturday with him and how, how I do everything with him and how I love him. I said, no, there's absolutely nothing that I would give up Keith for. He says, look at what God did for you in Jesus. He did not spare his own son. He said, Warren, God loves you a ton. God loves you a ton. That's the, that's the impact of, of Romans 8, 31, 30. What shall we say? God did not spare his own son. We can't imagine how much that meant to God. And that's how much he loves you. He loves you a ton. Uh, the fourth point, I'm going to have to hustle here with my <laughs> time. Uh, when God loves you, he, he, it's not just he loves you so much, but the details. He cares about every detail of your life. And I've, I've got some verses there. Even the hairs of your head are all numbered. That, that speaks for itself. Uh, and then uh, in John 13, the intro for John 13, Jesus has dinner with his disciples. And John writes in John 13, having loved his own who were in the world, he was about to go back to the Father. He now showed his disciples the full extent of his love. And he took off his clothes and wrapped a towel and began to wash his disciples' feet. You know, what I want to say is not only is God's love in Christ high and wide and long and deep, it extends to you having dirty toenails. He, he loves every detail of your life. Uh, and, Hebrew, and he knows everything about us. In Hebrews, there's a couple of verses, but I've got one of them there. You know, when we go to Jesus and we pray about what we're facing, he lived and walked on the earth. He knows everything we're going through. He knows every hardship we're going through and knows every temptation we're going to. He understands us. He understands us. Um, and then point number five, Jesus is our Savior. He died to forgive our sins. And there's so many verses about forgiving sins. Uh, you know, Jesus healed the paralytic. You know, the paralytic, they lowered him through the roof, and he said, okay, your sins are forgiven. And they said, well, <laughs> what do you mean? Only God for, for forgives sins. He says, well, what's easier? You want me to make him walk? Yeah, okay, get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven too. Uh, Mark 10, 45, and it's repeated in the other Gospels, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, Ephesians 1, 7 and 8, we have redemption through his blood. He sacrificed his, his blood for us. We, that's how we have forgiveness of sins. Prob that's the biggest thing Jesus does for us, and only Jesus could have done for us, that for us. Um, there's a, do we, need, we need to get to the next slide. Um, Pastor Mike's favorite verse, and my, mine too, in 2 Corinthians, how that God made Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us. That's why he suffered and died on the cross. God was punishing all the sin of the world so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And I'll get to this when I, when I talk about point six in a second, but it's not just that our sins are forgiven, 
but we get imputed to us the righteousness of Christ. We get to become children of God. Um, and then in Matthew 12, 8, a very important verse, but it's not often mentioned. Jesus says, uh, I tell you, is in the context of, of, the, of the Jews talking to him about, hey, your guys are doing stuff on the Sabbath. And he says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. But then he also says something else. He says, I tell you, one greater than the temple is here. One greater than the temple is here. You, you need to understand how big the temple was, literally, but also metaphorically in the life of the Jewish people. This is where all these sacrifices took place for hundreds and hundreds of years. And before that, in the tabernacle, all the sacrifices that took place ever since God gave them the law and what had to be done to, to get rid of sin. And the priests would sacrifice all these bulls and goats literally for thousands of years. And for him to say, one bigger than the temple is here, when God forgives sin, he is he's doing more than what could have been done in the temple over thousands of years for, 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 million, for millions of believers. He's bigger than the temple. Well, I'm on borrowed time here, so I want to I wanna just get to my last point. Uh, we, to, uh, we get to become children of God. Jesus gives us the right to be adopted as, as children of God. Um, I've got a little book down there, J.I. Packer. Uh, he has a great quote. There are many definitions of what it means to be a Christian, but the richest definition of being a Christian is to be a child of God. And what happens when Jesus forgives us of our sins? Well, that uh, gets us rid of the bad stuff and back to, back to zero. But of and beyond that, along with spare, not sparing us, he graciously gives us all sins. We're adopted as children of God. We become members of his family. Okay, and that's, that's of inestimable worth. Does everyone think, what is, what is eternal life? Does eternal life start when you die and go to heaven? well-educated group. No, no. Eternal life in John 17, 3, eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus, his son, whom he sent. And what did Jesus say? I came that you may have life and have it abundantly and have it to the full. When you accept Christ as your Lord, you are not only forgiven, but you've become a child of God and you have all the blessings that go along with that. Well, let me... Uh, and it starts right now, as soon as you believe. Well, let me close this in prayer.